Well, good morning. So today's reading is all of Deuteronomy chapter 29. Uh, So it should be on the screen. It's uh, all through the leaflet, nice long reading. Um, And then we also have those Bibles out the front. So Deuteronomy 29, starting at verse 1. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab, in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb. Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see or ears that hear. Yet the Lord says, During the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. When you reach this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out to fight against us, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives, and the foreigners living in your camps, who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath, to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath and they invoke a blessing on themselves, thinking I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way, they will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them His wrath and zeal will burn against them. All the curses written in this book will fall on them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. The Lord will single them out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster, according to all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. Your children who follow you in later generations and foreigners who come from distant lands will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulphur, nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods they did not know, gods he had not given them. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. Thanks, Emily. Can you hear me? Am I on? I'm on. Well, if you could jump in a time machine right now and go back and have the opportunity to give your younger self some advice, what would it be? I'm just thinking for me, maybe... Just say, go and admit to yourself that you're going bald. Don't prolong the agony. Just shave it off, okay? Or maybe don't chuck out all the old vinyl. Now you've got CDs. In 2023, people will pay top dollar for it. But more seriously, I bet we've all got regrets about sinful things that we've done. Things that at the time, in our hard-heartedness, we justified to ourselves, burying deep that we knew it was wrong. But now you'd do anything to go back to your younger self and just say, don't do that. It's got serious consequences. And it's good to learn that actions have consequences, isn't it? When we were first married in our first house, uh, there was a sort of kill switch for the electric shower, a pull cord one. And I was always leaving it on. And Sharon was always telling me to turn it off. And I say, yeah, yeah, I will, I will. But I always forget. And so she introduced consequences. Every time I left it on, she pinched me on the chest like that, really hard. And it really hurt. And I pretty much soon learned not to leave that switch on, didn't I? And when she threatens it again, I generally learn pretty quickly. As Israel are about to enter the promised land, God wants them to hear through Moses exactly the kind of warnings about consequences that they need to hear in order to live in the promised land with no regrets. And it's summed up in verse 9. So if God had come back in a time machine to them there in Moab, at the edge of the promised land, the kind of thing he'd say is, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. So their loving God wants them things to go well for them in the land. He wants them to enjoy life and good relationship with him there and all the blessings he's got stored up for them. And so he lays before them through Moses the promise of blessing through his covenant with them and warnings about the consequences of breaking their side of it. So the first half of the chapter, here's where we're heading. The first half of the chapter is about the renewing of the covenant. Um, So we'll have a think about what our covenant actually is how it applies to them, and how it helps us to understand God and living for today. 
Then we'll look at curses, the consequences of breaking the covenant from their side. And finally, we'll see how it is God's people can come back into right relationship with God and look at the hope they have and we have. So that's where we're heading. There's an outline in your leaflet if you find that kind of thing helpful. So first of all, in covenant, what exactly is a covenant? Well, a very dry dictionary definition is an agreement between two parties that specifies requirements for at least one party and includes blessings and curses for obedience or failure. That's the sort of dry definition. Covenants usually have signs that go with them, like the rainbow for Noah, circumcision for what's the sign? Put my hands up. Circumcision for um, Jewish males, and uh, there's usually a code that goes with them, like the Ten Commandments. And when, I've, when we were looking at Abram and other things, and I've mentioned covenant before from the front here, I've said it's like a contract, but Hank, thankfully, quite rightly and helpfully, pulled me up on that, because the covenant is so much more than just a contract. A good way to think of covenant, and I actually think this is a better title of this talk, is whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. That's what a covenant is saying. We'll do whatever it takes to fulfill this. See, a contract is negotiated by both parties and it's got limits and boundaries. It's got expiry dates. It's got get-out clauses. And if one side reneges on the deal, the whole thing collapses. That's a contract. Whereas a covenant is permanently binding, calling on each party to fulfill it, whatever it takes. So the closest thing we have to in modern life is wedding vows. But even rich people even change that into a contract with prenups and things, don't they? So God's covenant said to Abram back in Genesis 15 and 17, whatever it takes, I'll make you into a great nation through which I will bless the whole world. And Moses, uh, giving this talk in Deuteronomy, he grew up in a palace, didn't he? So the treaties and covenants of the ancient world, they would have been his bread and butter growing up. And lots of ink has been spilled about um, how Deuteronomy as a whole has the format of an ancient Near East treaty between a conquering king and his conquered territory, a suzerain vassal arrangement, they call it. And that's, you can see that. But what's really interesting is that the similarities only serve to highlight the differences. You see, in God's covenant, he, he doesn't negotiate. He sets the terms, tells Abram and Israel they're in it, and, and now he does the same for this wilderness generation. And God never, ever gives himself an out clause. In fact, quite the opposite. See, the tradition when making a covenant, it gets quite messy. The tradition was to symbolize the consequence of either party breaking it. So an animal was killed, chopped in half, the halves put side by side, and each party would walk between them as if to say, this is what will happen to you if you break this covenant. But in Genesis 15, Abraham doesn't walk between the pieces. Only God does. Only God does. And in Deuteronomy, um, next week in chapter 30, we'll look at what God promises to do when Israel failed to keep their side of the bargain. But back to chapter 29, verse 1. 
These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab, in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb. So Horeb was Mount Sinai. Uh, You can read about that in Exodus chapter 34, where God expands the detail of his covenant with Abraham to make Israel his own nation. But three things to point out about this covenant in Moab in Deuteronomy 29 right now. First, it's not a brand new covenant. It's a continuation. It's the same covenant with verse 1, new terms, new detail fleshed out. And verse 12 and 13, Moses explicitly connects it with the original existing covenant. Verse 12, you're standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and he swore, as he swore to your fathers, Abram, Isaac and Jacob. The original deal is still on and it applies to you like in front of me now in Moab. So God hasn't said, you know what, we had a good go, but you, you kind of whinged too much in the wilderness. It didn't work out. Let's cut a new deal or let's just cut it all off. Now instead, God doubles down on the fact that he will do whatever it takes to bless them and the world through them. So it's not a brand new covenant, it's a continuation. Second, this covenant isn't just a theoretical one. We've got um, accidental damage cover for our contents insurance. And until last Sunday morning, that was just theoretical. But 8 a.m. last Sunday morning, I was doing my usual last minute prep and dropped most of my cup of coffee directly into my laptop. And my top tip is, laptops don't like that. And they don't work afterwards if you do it. So now that theory that the insurance will pay out for a replacement has become reality, thankfully. That's good news. For Israel, they could look back on their lived history and see that God has already been keeping this covenant. They've had escaped from Egypt. They've been provided for in the wilderness for 40 years. Their clothes didn't wear out. The Nike trainers didn't wear out. They defeated giant King Gog. He was back again, wasn't he? And others capturing their land. And they're already being shaped and formed as God's redeemed and rescued covenant-blessed people. Baked into their identity already before they've even entered the promised land and all the blessing there. God's been faithful to his side of the covenant. And their history shows they'd be mad not to do their best to fulfill theirs. So it's a continuation. It's not just theory. Third thing to notice, it's corporate. Verse 14, I'm making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord, our God, but also with those who are not here today. So it's an ongoing, it's looking backwards and looking forwards and looking in the present covenant. It's for them and for the nation of Israel ongoing. Okay, but does that include us? Is this covenant for us? Because we know from places like Ephesians 2 and and 3 and from Romans 10 that Christians, followers of Christ, belonging to him, are now God's chosen people as much as Abraham, Jacob, or Moses were. So, for example, Ephesians 2.19, 
You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So as much as somebody on the grass there at Moab was, you're part of God's people. The difference for us, though, is that through Jesus' blood, we've been brought into a new covenant. We read Jesus' words about that in communion, didn't we? Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just symbolic or an example. It actually did something. It changed reality. Hebrews 9.15 puts it like this. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So Jesus has, made, has fulfilled, made come true for us the promises of God's original covenant. So Jesus isn't like plan B because the first covenant didn't work out. Now Jesus is the descendant of Abraham through whom God blesses the whole world. Jesus shows us that God will do whatever it takes to love us and bless us. And there is a right to response to that from our side, but let's not miss that assurance. God has done whatever it takes to win your blessing. We tend to lean towards one of two ways to solve the world's problems and to solve the problem of ourselves and our sin. And I think thinking about God's co- God being a covenant God helps us think about these things better. See, one way we try and deal with sin and our own sin is we try harsh authoritarianism. So in this worldview, we reckon people are fundamentally selfish, so we just need a strong, uncompromising leader or government authority figure to stamp out all violations of the covenant. So on a personal level, what we do, we need, we try and live lives of severe discipline and beat ourselves up with guilt when we go wrong. So that's one way, sort of authoritarian, stamp it out kind of way. Alternatively, we can assume that people are just are generally basically good and all we need to do is find the right formula to make everything okay. The right formula of education or economy or of self-expression to help people flourish and then they'll be fine. If only we find the right inputs, the right conditions. But God is a covenant God. So if God had just been that authoritarian sort of model, the tyrant called for by that first view, it has squashed Israel ages ago. It had given up on them ages ago. Instead, Jesus is one who really does have all authority and power over all heaven and all earth. What does he do with that power? He loves those he rules over enough to die for us. God himself taking the punishment to, for breaking those covenant. And as for that sort of fluffy, lovey second viewpoint, God, well, think about Israel as an example. God had and would continue to provide the perfect conditions and the perfect instructions for them to flourish. But God's under no illusions that that will be the solution for them, that that will make them all okay. He knows that we reject his goodness and act selfishly, whatever the conditions. Instead, God does whatever it takes. He gives us a new heart 
so that through his spirit we increasingly want to obey him and promises that in eternity we will obey him perfectly. So our covenant God isn't just about punishing rule breakers. He's not just about fluffy, shallow love that acts like nothing matters and nobody is to blame. The gospel of our covenant God is Jesus is Lord and he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of God's covenant promises showing us love and justice go together. And as we increasingly get our heads around that and see how God does whatever it takes, well, that affects how we see others, how we see ourselves, what we pray for. And most importantly, it leads us to totally trust and depend upon God to do whatever it takes. Okay, so God's made these whatever it takes promises to his people to love and bless them. And he gave them the covenant law so they're not left guessing. Then it's super clear what their side of the bargain is and how to keep it. To love and obey God from the heart, following his commands. And the consequences for obeying his commands, blessing. For disobeying, curses. Our next section, let's think about curses. Excuse me. Curses. What are curses? Well, they're not swear words. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean bad spells or dark magic or something. Curses in Deuteronomy are the consequences of failing to obey God. The consequences of failing to obey God. They're what happens to God's people if they turn away from him. They're warnings. And if you want to get a detailed picture of them, you can read chapter 28. Because there's 53 curses. 53 of them. Curses or consequences, things like skin diseases, being scattered, all sorts of things. You could kind of generally categorize them as the exodus being reversed or the opposite of the blessings promised for the promised land. Now, we're not under the same covenant law anymore. And we are in a different phase of God's big plan to save humanity. So we can't ignore verses like Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So we can look to the cross of Christ. All the curses we deserve have already been paid for by Jesus. God himself providing the sacrifice. So we aren't under the law in the same way. But we shouldn't ignore these curses either. Because like the law, the curses are still helpful in showing us what matters to God, what angers him, what dangers he wants to defend and protect us from. So the curses aren't just God being unreasonably smitey. The curses are discipline to serve as a warning of the consequences of turning away from God. Because as bad as the curses are, they aren't as bad as being finally found apart from God. God will never call it quits. He'll always welcome back his people who turn to him in repentance. So let's pick out three warnings for us from these curses in chapter 29. First, beware of bad apples. 29 verse 18. 
Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. See, in Egypt and the countries that passed through, Israel had seen just how awful it was to get into idolatry, the oppressive, miserable slavery of a life lived worshipping idols. But how did it What's the danger here? Have a look at these hairdos from the 80s. Thanks, Robert. Have a look. And it's got last one that looks great. How do people get to... Some of these hairdos come back around, don't they? But have you thought, how did that, that woman go into a photography studio and think, this is a really great hairdo, ever? See, God knows that we're so easily led astray by our tribe by people like us, by our family, or even just one person, that he calls for zero tolerance, letting anyone turn their hearts away from God because they produce such bitter poison. And like a hairdo coming into fashion, it happens gradually usually. Because it'd be easy for me to list the top five theological errors or our top five idols to guard against. But I reckon it's more important to think about how we ourselves might slowly, gradually turn our own hearts away from God and lead others to do the same. Because I don't think anybody wakes up one morning and goes, I'm going to abandon God, and I'm going to take a few with me along the way, or I'm going to be a heretic today. No, what happens is you get... It's a convincing of an unbiblical idea here that we read or take on board. Read or hear and take on board. It's a prioritizing of our culture's ethics over God's there. It's convincing ourselves that new commitment of our time, that new relationship isn't going to crowd God out of my life. And we can gradually make these things part of how we tick because they're what in our sinfulness we want to hear. And so we take them on board until we find ourselves hard-hearted, in a shape resistant to God. It happens like this. My dad had a problem with his inner ear. And one test that showed that was he was asked to walk on the spot with his arms out facing forwards for 30 seconds. Yeah, I'm still facing it. When my dad did that, he found himself had rotated 180 degrees because of his balance problem, without even feeling it. And we can find the hundreds of small steps we've taken in the wrong direction eventually have turned us away from God. So how do we avoid this? Well, first of all, together. We avoid this together. It's much harder for a whole crowd to go wrong at the same time. So hold one another accountable. Be the kind of person that is open to another Christian brother or Christian brother or sister correcting you. Say, actually, I don't think that's quite right. Be the kind of person that is kind and nice and level-headed enough to have your correction taken well if you give it. And be deep in God's word. Be familiar with it. Study it so that you can recognize crock when you see it. And as you do, God will keep working on the new heart he's given you 
to give the ability to obey and to recognize error. So beware of bad apples and beware of cheap grace. Verse 19. When such a person hears the words of this oath and they invoke a blessing on themselves, thinking, I'll be safe, even though I persist in going my own way, they will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. All the curses written in his book will fall on them. That's some warning, isn't it? God is warning them against thinking, well, I'm part of God's people. I go to a Trinity church. God's going to bless me anyway, so I can do what I want. It's warning us against presuming upon God's grace just because we're in church and warning us against the attitude that it doesn't matter what we do because God will always forgive us anyway. I saw this report. I've got a picture here. Thanks. I saw this report from the UK. Crows and magpies have been using anti-bird spikes to build nests. I mean, they're amazing, aren't they? And what those crows and magpies have done is taken something and used it for exactly the opposite purpose for what it was intended for. And when we treat God's grace cheaply, that's exactly what we're doing. The Bible's clear our sin is forgiven through Christ by faith, not by our work. But the kind of faith that saves stays aware aware of what Jesus, at unimaginable cost to himself, has saved us from, saved us for. The Bible never holds back on warning against us living like the grace we enjoy came cheaply. In Jesus' own words from uh, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That should make us stop and check our hearts. Are we just saying it whilst persisting and going on our own way? If that's you today, please, today, right now, turn your heart back to God. And ask his help in getting the choices you are making line up with that repentance. So beware bad apples, beware cheap grace, and beware mass exodus. See, verses 22 to 23 paint a picture of terrible destruction of the land. Because the nation as a whole have turned against God. You might remember when we looked at chapter 4, we imagined a Moabite, an Egyptian, and an Ammonite going into a bar, talking about Israel, marveling at what a great, happy nation Israel were. Well, chapter 29 imagines that scene turning sour. This time, they're wondering, verse 24, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce, burning anger? And the answer will be, it's because his pe- this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. See, our sin, especially when it's collective, encourages the world to look on with scorn. Our sin can hinder God's mission to reach the lost. So should we go away today scared that we're going to suffer God's curses for our sin. 
want? No. Jesus has taken on himself any curse we deserve. But these warnings are God's mercy to us. We're to take note of them, heed them, to help us make sure we don't get convinced to turn away from him. So don't despair, but do take heed. All of us at some point, even if not today, will feel the weight of having turned against God in some way. And the good news is, even for Israel at their worst, there is always a way to come back. Just to finish with our last heading, come back. Let's return to the beginning of the chapter, chapter verse 4. They'd experienced all this miraculous rescue and redemption by God. But verse 4, to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. So right at the top of this covenant renewal, before they've entered the land, the message is, you've got no hope of keeping this covenant, of even seeing your blessings without God's help. You need God's help right from the get-go. The covenant begins, continues, and is fulfilled in total dependence on God. Believing in him, trusting in him, depending on him. That has always been, and still is the right response to God's whatever it takes, love for us. And I think that's what verse 29 is about. Verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. We can never know everything about God, but he reveals enough for us to know him, enough to love him and trust him with our lives. To finish on a note of hope in the face of these curses, we need to have a sneak preview of chapter 30, which we'll look at, uh, finish our series on next week. And chapter 30 starts with, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, in other words, you won't obey, you will suffer these curses, you will sin. But what then? Is there a way back? Well, God doesn't give up on them, and he doesn't give up on us. He provides a way back for those who turn back to him, promising to restore their blessings. He promises a promise fulfilled by Jesus in sending his Holy Spirit. Chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. God will do whatever it takes. God knows we will keep sinning, but don't despair. He's got a plan for that. Heed his warnings, turn back to him and receive the forgiveness and blessing that Jesus has won for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, confess sometimes we domesticate you and make you just warm and fluffy. But please help us to heed these warnings. Help us to see how seriously you take sin. Well, help us to know the great assurance that you've done whatever it takes to bless us. Please help us from that assurance to live lives of obedience. I pray for anyone here today 
struggling with sin. Please help them to turn back to you, to recognize it for what it is, to see it with your eyes, soften their hearts and turn to you in faith. For all of us, Lord, please help us to be totally dependent on you. And thank you that you fulfill all your promises, doing whatever it takes. Amen.